But if you will now, please take your Bibles and turn in them to uh, the Gospel according to John chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first ten verses of that chapter. Uh, you can use the text that's on the back of your sermon outline. Use the provided Bible in front of you. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Uh, let us pray and uh, ask for God's blessing upon our time this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come now before you to look at your word and to hear it proclaimed, we pray, O Lord, that you will give us ears to hear what you would say to us. And not just to understand the words, Lord, but the deeper meaning. And may these words strengthen our faith and feed our souls and comfort us, Lord, as we progress through our pilgrim journey, waiting for the return of Christ. Until then, Lord, may we be strengthened by this spiritual food that we are about to receive this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 10. Please give your attention as God's word is read in your hearing. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a piece by itself. Then the other disciple, whom the, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I like reading stories and watching movies that have great reversals in them. And by a great reversal, I mean something, the story in which you see the hero or the heroes are facing imminent defeat. They're about to be destroyed. And then at the last moment, something happens, something changes. And then that defeat is turned into victory. Now, if you're a Huskers fan, I know this might be a sore point. If you're a Huskers fan, you may be thinking... They have snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory many, many times over the last few years, and that may be the case. But here, uh, one story I like, and I, I shudder sometimes to give movie references, but in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, and in the book, The Lord of the Rings, you have, uh, in the middle of that story, you have the Battle of Helm's Deep, where uh, the forces of Rohan are holding off the uh, the orcs of, of the Uruk-hai, and, and, and it looks like everything is about to fall apart, like, like everything is about to, to collapse in a, in a momentous defeat, yet at the very last moment, Gandalf appears with uh, the armies of Rohan at his, at his back, and they come and they save the day, and that's a great reversal. 
And that's what we kind of see here in this passage this morning as we get ready to look at uh, the, the last couple of chapters of John's Gospel. The last time we looked, uh, when we looked at the, the passage last week, we saw Jesus laid in the tomb. Before that, he, was, he died. Before that, he was crucified. Before that, he was tried by a, by a Roman court. And we saw it looked like it just was getting worse and worse and worse. Jesus was uh, convicted falsely of crimes he did not commit. He was spat upon. He was bruised. He was beaten. He was crucified cruelly between two criminals. And then he was laid in a tomb. We said it couldn't get more darker than this if you were a disciple of Christ, if you were a follower, if you were one of those twelve. You may be thinking, the kingdom is at hand and now our king is dead. What are we going to do? Well, here as we see uh, in this passage, on the first day of the week, on that first Easter Sunday, we're going to see the first day of a new era break forth as that tomb was empty. It all begins with the empty tomb as Jesus conquers sin, conquers death by his resurrection. That's really the theme of our passage this morning. Messiah defeats death by his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Well, first we're going to look at, uh, I mean, first of all, the, you know, the message is broken out into third, three parts. We're going to look at some surprised disciples in verses 1 through 4. So let us look at those verses again, please. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. All four Gospels record this episode. All four Gospels record that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the morning of that first day of the week. Now, it's interesting because we often say that Jesus rose on the third day, right? If you account days, he died on Friday, was laid in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday, third day. You know, the way they reckoned days was all or part of a day was a day. So we would say he was raised on the third day. But John here makes a special note to say this was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. And there's, there's some significance to that, which we may get into in a moment. But we, all four Gospels mention that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the first day of the week. Matthew and Mark mention that it was Mary with other women. Luke simply just says the women who were there at the crucifixion, went to the tomb on the first day, including Mary Magdalene. Here, John focuses on Mary Magdalene by herself. All four Gospels mention the appearance of angels at the tomb. Now, John's mention is a little bit later. We'll get to that in a moment, too. But you have to think about this from Mary's perspective. She's going there to finish what Joseph and Nicodemus couldn't finish 
the day uh, on, on that Friday when they took the body down and anointed it and prepared it for burial. They had to do it quickly because the Sabbath was upon them and they had to put that body in the tomb and prepare for the Sabbath. So Mary and the other women come to sort of continue to anoint the body. Now she's coming expecting to see the tomb there. In fact, the other Gospels say that the women spoke amongst themselves and they say, who's going to roll the, t- the stone away from the tomb? How, you know, we, 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 we didn't think this out far enough. You know, we're, we're not strong enough to roll the stone away. Uh, who's going to roll that stone away? When Mary comes to the tomb, they are not expecting to see the stone already rolled away. So she is surprised. And in her surprise, her first reaction is to drop everything, run back to where the other disciples are, and to mention that the body has been gone. They have taken the Lord away. In fact, that was her first impression. Not that he rose from the dead. No, they took him away. The they, probably, perhaps the Romans, perhaps the Jews. In fact, it was the Jews... You learn this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. It was the Jews who approached Pilate and said, you need to put a guard on that tomb. Because we heard his disciples talking, or he talked about how he was going to raise, rise from the dead on the third day, and, and we fear that his disciples may go and sneak and take away the body, so we want you to put a guard on the tomb. So Mary comes to Peter and John. That's... We've seen this before in John's Gospel. Whenever you see the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself. So she comes, she tells Simon Peter, she tells John and the other disciples, they have taken away the Lord, and we do not know where they have laid him. We don't know where he is. Where is the body of our Master now, what did Peter and John do when they heard the news? Well, they immediately begun, begin to run to the tomb. I always kind of find it funny how you know, it mentions that John got there first. He outran him. You know, maybe John being younger, maybe he was like you know, a track star in you know, Jerusalem High or whatever. But he gets there first. And I imagine Peter probably getting there later, kind of huffing and puffing. It's like you know, when he gets there. But he gets there. John looks in. Peter looks in. And they, of course, corroborate exactly what Mary said. And again, just like Mary was not expecting the stone to be rolled away and the tomb to be empty, Peter and John were not going there expecting a resurrection. They were not going there expecting to find an empty tomb. They were surprised by the news from Mary. They were surprised by the testimony of their own eyes. Even though Jesus had said on multiple occasions that he would be convicted, that he would be cruelly treated, that he would be crucified, and that he would raise again on the third day. They did not understand this. And you would think, of all people who would not be surprised by this, it would be Peter and John and the rest of the eleven. Yet they were surprised by the empty tomb. They were surprised that the body wasn't there even though Jesus said it wasn't going to be there on the third day. How often are we surprised when the scriptures prove true? Right? How often are we surprised in our own lives that, oh, you mean God does answer prayer? <laughs> oh, you mean the, you, know, you can't come to faith, you can't come to Christ unless it is by grace through faith? 
I often think of the story in the book of Acts uh, where Peter's arrested and the entire remaining disciples are in the room praying for his release. And when Peter is released and he comes and he knocks on the door, uh, the woman, you know, a woman goes up and she's, she sees Peter and then she kind of leaves him there. <laughs> you know, it's like they were, they were praying for his release, yet they weren't expecting that God would actually answer that prayer. How often are we surprised when God answers prayer? How often are we surprised when the scriptures prove to be true? Let this strengthen our faith that we may not expect. We, we probably have very small expectations of God being uh, the fallen people that we are. You know, we may pay lip service to what we believe, but perhaps in our, because of our own unbelief, because of our own fallenness, because of our own flesh, you know, sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we don't expect big things from God. Yet we should expect big things from God. We should pray for big things from God. God may or may not answer those prayers. I think of Daniel's three friends in Daniel chapter 3. They are about to be thrown into that fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, and which God is going to save you from my wrath? And the three friends said, well, the God that we worship can save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow to your statue, O king. So go ahead and do your worst. So they had a strong enough faith to know that God can save them, but he doesn't have to. But we sometimes need to perhaps pray for bigger things and expect bigger things from our God. Perhaps our expectations are too small. Well, that's a, those are the surprise disciples. Let's now look at the empty tomb in verses 5 through 7. And he, that is John, the other disciple, Stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So John, of course, because he's faster than Peter, gets there first, looks in. He doesn't go in. Not exactly sure why. Perhaps, you know, doesn't want to be associated with uh, uncleanness. Uncleanness was associated with death. So he kind of looks in and notices, Mary was right. There's no body in this tomb. And then Peter comes a little bit later, huffing and puffing. Now, Peter does what Peter always does, right? He just kind of goes right in, right? When, when, Peter saw, when Peter sees Jesus at the end of John's Gospel, he just gets off, the, he jumps off the boat and starts swimming toward Jesus. So he just runs right into the tomb. And he finds nothing there but the grave clothes laying there. And then the, the facial shroud, the burial shroud, is folded up and laying there. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Right? Mary says, they took away the body of our Lord. We do not know where they laid him. So if the Romans, or if the Jews went in there and took the body of Jesus so that the disciples would not uh, you know, break it and take it, would they re- take the time to remove the burial clothes? Would they take the time to take the facial shroud off of him and fold it in a nice pile and lay it there? No, they would just probably take the body and then leave. You know, they, you know, they, they wouldn't care about the state of the tomb. If you remember, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And 
Lazarus, of course, he's wrapped up in his burial clothes with his facial shroud on, and he kind of comes, you know, shuffling out of the tomb. And that's when Jesus says, remove the burial clothes from him. Free him. He is no longer dead. Now, it's as if Jesus here is laying breadcrumbs for the disciples so that they would see that this empty tomb means that Jesus was resurrected. That body that was laid in the tomb was transformed into a glorious body and almost, in a sense, passed through the burial clothes. And then Jesus takes the face cloth and folds it himself and lays it there. It's as if it's a sign saying, I am risen. Follow the breadcrumbs, Peter. Just as sure as Jesus was laid in the tomb on Friday evening, that tomb was empty Sunday morning because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is risen. The empty tomb proves that death could not hold Jesus. Death could not hold its prey. I love that verse in that song. Death could not hold its prey. Death could not hold Jesus. Jesus, as the Apostles' Creed says, He was dead, buried, He descended into hell, and then He came out victorious on the other end. Christ is the victor. He is the victor over sin. He is the victor over death. He is the victor of life itself. Well, finally, let's look at our third point, a glorious truth in verses 8 through 10. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So apparently John, after seeing Peter kind of rush into the tomb, overcomes his fear, and he steps in, and he saw, and we're told here that he believed. John, the author of this gospel, says, I saw this, and I believed that he did actually rise from the dead. Now, was he smarter than Peter? I mean, I don't know, maybe, but was he more enlightened than Peter? No, the Spirit illuminated this truth to John. He saw with his eyes the, the empty tomb, the empty tomb with the clothes laying there and the facial shroud folded neatly beside the tomb. And then he believed. Now, was this belief fully formed? No, because we see here in verse 9, the other disciples, uh, for they did not yet know the scripture. John's belief is just based on eyewitness testimony. Yet he should have known this had he known the scriptures. The whole point of John's gospel, the whole point of any of the gospels, really, is that we would believe, that we would see the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we would believe. Now, each gospel author has his own perspective that he is showing you the life of Jesus. Matthew wants you to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Jewish King coming, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark wants to show you uh, Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke wants to show you Jesus as the son of man, the one who comes to save the world. John wants to show you Jesus as the son of God. 
as the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in His name. The whole point of this Gospel is that we would believe. John saw the empty tomb and he believed even though his belief was not yet fully formed. But this is the Gospel in a nutshell. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance, of chief importance, the Gospel message. Now, what scripture is John referring to here when he says they did not yet know the scriptures? Well, the most prominent scripture, of course, would be Psalm 16.10. But I want you, if you could, please turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and I want to look at, well, starting in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is Peter's Pentecost Day sermon, right? Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. And he expounds three texts in this passage. The first one is Joel 2. The second one is Psalm 16 and some others. And then the third one is Psalm 110. But here in verse 22, Peter says to the group there that are uh, gathered, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, Wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is my right hand, at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make, known, uh, you will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Paul, or Peter, in his very first sermon on Pentecost Day, quotes from Psalm 16, particularly verse 10, where he says, You will not leave my soul in Hades or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Then he explains the meaning of that. That death could not hold Christ because He was the Holy and Righteous One of God. And that He was raised. That God raised Him. 
And he says at the end of that, we are witnesses to this. We saw it. Peter says, I saw with my own eyes. I saw that empty tomb. The passage concludes by telling us the disciples then went away. This is back to John now. Back to John 20. After seeing that empty tomb, the disciples went away again to their own homes. John with his partial belief. Peter with his perplexed belief. Kind of like the man in Mark 9, I believe, helped my unbelief. But here, they go home. Uh, We'll look more as as we'll see Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to people. But it concludes by telling us they went away to their own homes. John apparently believed Peter was still perplexed by these events. Now, what does this mean for us? What this means for us is that the glorious truth of the empty tomb definitively definitively proves that Jesus conquered sin and death by his resurrection. That's why we looked at that passage in Acts 2. Because Peter, 50 days later, was now filled with the Spirit and he was now a forceful voice preaching the Gospel, telling forth how this was the fulfillment of Scriptures. That empty tomb that he saw was confused on that first day of the week proves that Jesus conquered sin and death by his resurrection. And this alone is praiseworthy. But the resurrection is more than just that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. There's meaning for us as well. I invite you please now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. We've looked at this passage. We've studied First Corinthians in Sunday school, and we've preached through this on a, on a few occasions. In that passage, Paul is answering questions about the resurrection. And the, and the biggest thing that was going on in Corinth, at least from what we can glean from the text, is that the majority of the people in the Corinthian church had no problem believing that Christ was raised from the dead. What they failed to connect was that his resurrection was the guarantee of our resurrection. So they didn't think that we would be raised from the dead. And Paul spends an entire chapter to confront that and to refute that. So he starts here in verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But now Christ is risen from the dead. That would be a great spot for an amen. All right, can, we, can we be Baptist for five seconds? Now Christ is risen from the dead. There you go. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now the thrust that I want to get out of this passage is that 
Paul here connects the resurrection of Christ with our future resurrection. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. He is the proof of a harvest yet to come. Christ is raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead as well. Last week I looked at Lord's Day 16 in the Catechism. Uh, This morning I want to look at Lord's Day 17 because particularly question 45. Because in Lord's Day 17, question 45 uh, as the Catechism is going through the Apostles' Creed, right? As, we, as you confess the Apostles' Creed, that's what you say, right? Jesus Christ, He was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, He descended into hell, rose again on the third day. And Lord Day 17 is going through the Apostles' Creed and says, what benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? It's kind of pulling out what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is raised, amen, and that is praiseworthy, but his resurrection also means our resurrection. And the catechism here gives us three reasons why, or three benefits, I should say, of the resurrection. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of righteousness, which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are now raised up to a new life. Third, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Three benefits. First, we are made partakers of his righteousness. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. That's why he didn't just go immediately to the cross when he came down to this earth, but lived a life for 30 years. Perfectly obeying the law of God, keeping all righteousness. Every jot and tittle Jesus obeyed perfectly in thought, word, and deed. So that that righteousness that he obtained can be given to us. He was laid in the tomb, but he was raised for our justification. That's what Paul says in Romans 4.25. Raised for our justification. The resurrection shows that Christ's sacrifice of atonement was acceptable. God showed it was acceptable by raising him from the dead. If he was not raised from the dead, we would still be left in our sins. So we are made partakers of his righteousness through faith obtained by his death. Second, his resurrection raises up us up to new life. Romans 6.4 says, if we have been buried in a death like his, we will also be united to him in a resurrection like his. We have new life in us now. Right? The new man is in us alive, warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we are raised to new life now, raised to newness of life. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he goes on and says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me. So we've been raised to new life. That's the second benefit. The third benefit, his resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, He is the first fruits. We too will be raised from the dead. 
His resurrection is the promise that we too will be raised from the dead. Is it any surprise then that we call the gospel a declaration of good news? Because this is indeed good news that we, we will be raised too as Christ has been raised from the dead. As we bring this to a close, before we uh, came to this part of the service, we sang that song, Up from the Grave He Arose. It's a triumphant reminder that the tomb was empty that Sunday morning in Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago. That empty tomb, it's still empty. That body, if you're going to look for it, you're not going to find it because that body is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will come again one day to bring the consummation of all things. But it is a triumphant reminder that that tomb was empty. The sin that made it necessary for Christ to take upon Himself a human nature and enter His creation was not enough to keep Him in the grave. When Christ hung on that cross, He bore the weight of all of our sins. The weight of all of our sins was upon His shoulders. Yet even that was not enough to keep Him in the grave. That could not weigh Him down and keep Him in that grave. He was able to burst forth through the bars of death even though He carried all of our sin because that sin was atoned for. His righteousness would not allow Him to see corruption. And as we've been going through these verses and these chapters in the latter part of John, we've been talking a lot about the states of Christ. We've talked about His humiliation, right? His being made low. Uh, again, the Apostles' Creed talks about that. How was Christ made low? He was born uh, of the Virgin Mary. He came into this world. He took on human flesh. He suffered, uh, was de- crucified, dead, and buried. That is Christ being made low. But now, as we see the resurrection, we see now the exaltation of Christ. Christ is being exalted. The first part of that exaltation is Christ being raised from the dead. His glorious resurrection is a declaration that He is indeed the Son of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.4. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. Beloved, do not think that this is some isolated incident that happened 2,000 years ago. Because we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday morning. That is why it's called the Lord's Day. Why is it the Lord's Day? Because it was the day on which the Lord was raised from the tomb. It was the day on which that tomb was found empty. The Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is a celebration in some way, shape, or form of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has eternal ramifications for us. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that this life, with all of its pain, all of its misery, all of its suffering, all of its sorrow, all of its tears, all of its death, is not the end of the story. I love, if you will, please... Turn back to John, but go back to John 11. We looked at this some months ago when we looked at the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. But I love how Jesus talks to Martha. Martha is the, if you remember Martha and Mary, the two sisters of Lazarus. Martha is the doer. She's the, 
She's the alpha female, I guess. I don't know what you would call her. She's the one who's got to be busy about something, right? You know, something, you know, you know those kind of people, right? Something bad happens, and what do they do? They occupy themselves. They're working, working, working. And she's the first one to meet Jesus when Lazarus is dead, and he comes later. And Martha's like, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you know, you may say, well, that's a harsh thing to say to Jesus. Well, she's suffering. Her brother died, right? Her brother was probably the one who supported this family. If you had been here, my brother, and that's true. If Jesus had been there, he would not have died. But then that's what he says. This is for the glory of God, that the glory of God may be revealed in this. In John chapter 11, Jesus says in verse 23, because right before I says, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, so she shows some faith here. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And in verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will live again. Now Martha, you know, her theology is right. She says, yes, I know. But he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Then verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then she says, yes, Lord, I believe. She was looking for a day of the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am that resurrection. I am the one in whom there is life. If you believe in me, you will live and never die. That's what we see here in this passage. Jesus Christ is the resurrection because he has been raised from the dead. As the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, as we see this glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, may this fill our hearts with comfort. May we go through life recognizing that though sorrows may accompany us on our pilgrim journey, that we may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death ourselves. Help us to know that the truth of the resurrection is a truth that sin and death are not the final answer. They have not conquered, but Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection. And as Paul can say that the light and momentary affliction that we face in this world is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us at the return of Christ Jesus. May these words, Lord, strengthen us and encourage us as we go through our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.